June of this year, I met up with pop singer, legend, folk singer, Eddie Reader for a chat. And we had a, a great chat. And it was so good, in fact, that we were halfway through the conversation before I'd even managed to get press record on the, on the, the recorder. So anyway, so here's an edited start. Now, remember, also check out Eddie's brand new album, Cavalier. It's a great listen. And if you enjoy these podcasts, check out my Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Simon Tumier. When I left in 1978, there was nothing. You couldn't make a record for the type of person that I was. Um, I I knew there was folk folk folkies around, but I didn't have... um, The the folk clubs that I went to all died a death. The first folk festival was in April, and that was up in Inverness. And we all used to go up there, and you'd see the likes of Archie Fisher. And Hamish Imlach, as I said, was a big mentor to me because... I used to go hang out with Eleanor Shaw, who played um, fiddle, and she played at Irvine Folk Club. We did floor spots. So floor spots, we paid a pound, and we got in, and if we sung a song, we got our pound back. That was the deal. So I was able to convince quite a lot of the folk club organisers that that we could sing a tune, and we would write our own songs, me and Eleanor Shaw, and we would we'd just play things like Three Drunken Maidens or I'd learn things like Lowlands of Holland. I really liked the folk scene because you you could learn so much in in a week you would you would have practiced three songs that somebody had taught you on the Wednesday night. So you'd spend all week practicing them and, and writing out the chords and the and the lyrics. So that was really good for me. I, I enjoyed that learning experience with folk music uh, because prior to that it would be whatever was on the radio or what my mum and dad listened to and mm-hmm. what the pop songs were. The Irvine Folk Club used to meet in the Eglinton Arms on a Wednesday night and um, there was a whole load of figures there that I only knew as as a wee lassie, mm-hmm. kind of seeing the bigger people. I mean, Tannehill Weavers and all those people would come. They were the stars. Hamish Imlach, Titch Freer, Danny Cowell, the stars. So I wouldn't get on first name terms with any of these people. I was just the wee beggar lassie wanting to have a floor spot. But people like Arthur Johnson of the Star Club remembers me. I only remember him because he was this, he was twice the size that he is now. So when I met him again, I, I couldn't believe it was the same guy because I remember a big kind of barrel-chested guy. And So Arthur's a thinner man now and... But when he describes me, I don't recognise it either. Right? He <laughs> describes a wee lassie saying, I'm going to London and I'm going to get out of here. But <laughs> this place was derelict. To be honest, I couldn't get a drink in the pub. I couldn't get... You know, it was feminism, I always say, that didn't he, didn't he reach Glasgow at the same time as it reached the rest of the world. And so I was in Glasgow. I'd left home, which was Irvin. I'd moved into Glasgow. I'd joined a band with... Uh, Angus Aird and a guy called Dave Dick and um, they plucked me out of the audience in Irvine Folk Club and I, because afterwards the acts would always talk to you. That was the great thing about folk music. These guys that would be the stars, they would actually sit with you and have a drink afterwards and talk about music and and it was very educational. So, um, in fact, folk music, just it turned my life around. My mum and dad and my sisters and brothers didn't really understand it because it was always considered a bit highbrow, you know, folk music. 
cultural music. The only folk music we got was people singing opera on the telly at New Year, or a kind of BBC filtered version of, of, of folk Scottish music, which would be Andy Stewart singing, you know, You Ain't Nothing But A Hound Dog in a kilt. And that was kind of it. Uh -huh. And I didn't really venture into that very far, except in the folk clubs where there was a broader range of musical uh, expressionism coming in. You'd get Heather Haywood. Heather Haywood would stand up in Kilmarnock Folk Club and every single Thursday night she would sing a song unaccompanied, which was remarkable to me because I always relied on my guitar. But Heather Haywood, there she was, standing in front of me, singing in her own voice, her own accent, a song of her own culture. And I, I just thought that that was... You'd have to have a degree to be able to do that, you know? I didn't know anything about Scottish history. I was removed from it because I was brought up in Glasgow, so my cultural experience was what was on the BBC. And, uh, you know, occasionally a granny or an auntie might sing, Oh, how I'm longing for my ain folk. That was kind of mm -hmm. the only Scottish folk song I'd ever heard in my family. And beyond that, uh, people would be just doing rock and roll and singing rock and roll songs or old 40s songs from the American songbook. So it was only in folk clubs that I was able to expand my experience. And it was amazing. It was amazing to hear people playing me a Bob Dylan song um, when my only experience of acoustic music was John Denver before that, you know. And um, so hearing people sing on a company like Heather Haywood or Arthur Johnson himself or any of that bunch, Hamish. What I loved about Hamish was he applied comedy and so did Titch Freer. So Titch Freer and Hamish, they would they would be the comedians mostly. So a lot of the people that I joined in with, they had a real line in comedy. And um, it seemed to me that that, was, that went hand in hand with folk music. A wee joke, uh, a wee aside, a wee story of tragedy mixed with a big one-liner at the end about and making you laugh after after hearing this song about somebody murdering their wains and I think that that was what was so attractive about it to me it was like a it was like a family party except there was a real deep sense that you could learn something and um, stretch your I don't think folk clubs have lost that at all though. I think that's good. still the essence you can still go and speak to the, the star yes. guest well, I've noticed that since that, I came home, know, yeah. That is folk music in general, wherever you go, though. Yeah. Well, I noticed that, and everywhere I went, it was like a religion. I would go to, when I went down to London, I'd go to find the folk club. So I ended up in Bungie's folk club, and I ended up singing in the tube station. So I was busking at the why, time. Why did you decide to go to London? Uh, I remember um, the energy for being here, first of all, the folk clubs were all dying and there was a lot of drunkenness and other stuff that just, it made me feel that I was wasting my time. There was a, there was a lot of um, sexism in 1978, 79. There was a lot of you know, wee lassiness attitude, whereas I felt very equal to every man, musician, that I was standing in front of. And I could play better than them, actually, in a lot of cases. But there was a lot of... Um, protectionism as well about things that I would like to know about, like teach me a Gaelic song and, well, you know, if you don't know about it, then you're not in the club. And I felt that was really wrong. 
there was a lot of ideas. Like, for, for example, Irvine Folk Club, you could sing a James Taylor or a Joni Mitchell song. But in, and as a nascent performer, you need those ladder rungs to, to express yourself so that you can learn your own expressionism. But I, so I would automatically seek out songs that I heard, maybe Linda uh, Thompson singing or, or whatever. And, and um, I felt like, so I'd go to Kilmarnock, I'd go to Irvine and you could sing what you liked. And then people would just get drunk at the end of the night. It was just a big drunk party. And then after that, not that that wasn't valid, but it was, that was it. That was it. There was no other way you were going anywhere else. You weren't getting a spot at the, at the folk club. At the, you know, you weren't getting the mainline spot. You just weren't. Everybody else was getting, it was almost like a cornered market. It was already sorted out. And then you go to Kilmarnock Folk Club and you weren't allowed to sing anything that was American. So there was a bit of restriction that, I couldn't quite tolerate as a as a as a sort of open-minded musician. I I I want I loved the the essence of folk music because it was non-pretentious, but I also found pretension within it that I couldn't quite I could I just butted my nose against it. It was like no, life's more than that. You know, there's more to music than learning exactly how they sung it in seventeen o three. You know, you have to take it. And I love the way John Martin, for example, and um, other people like Van Morrison would stretch those those uh, genres. And um, and I, I just felt there was... There didn't seem to be any... There was no school for me to go to that I could learn this stuff. I wasn't of a background that had traditional music in it, so I couldn't learn it from any auntie or granny. Um unbeknownst to me I had a DNA that was full of traditional music but I didn't know that at the time neither did my dad or his father so you know they were just shipyard workers who, who grew up with popular culture so but I, there I was with my DNA ready and willing and and it just seemed that there was a bit of a once you'd done the folk clubs that was it once you'd done the the folk festivals that was it so I headed down to Cambridge first. It wasn't London first, it was Cambridge. So Cambridge Folk Festival was the biggest festival. And a friend in Irvine, two guys in Irvine that I was in a band with, they, they were like, this is where we've got to go. This is the place to go. We want to play to people. So we went down there and we'd have campfires and we'd all sing a song. And I had learned Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. And Lord Franklin and uh, Woodstock by Matthews. Southern Comfort, whatever. I'd learned those songs and um, and I was singing, but the people were playing in not my key. So one guy was playing it and I had to stretch my voice really loud. So it turns out that I had this strong voice. Whereas before it was all very, don't think twice, it's all right. Very quiet. Turned into, don't think twice. Turned into this big giant noise that people could hear for miles in Cambridge. and. So every night around this campfire, people would all gather to hear me singing a, a tune. And I wasn't particularly aware of any beauty in my voice, just that I enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed the, the showing of it. And I enjoyed the playing with it because it felt great. It felt great to be able to reach <laughs> notes that I, I just, I don't know why. And I mean, I'm sure I just didn't believe that I was in competition with anybody. I didn't believe that I had a, 
Um, I had to limit myself in a fashion way. I didn't believe I had to limit myself in a classical way. I didn't believe I had to limit myself in a folk traditional way. I just felt that I was a child of nature and I wanted to reach wherever I wanted to reach. Ultimately, the corners of everybody's heart is where I wanted to reach. And whether that took me singing a folk version of a of a Sex Pistols song or an Elvis Presley song or a, or a, or a song written in 1605, then that's what I was going to use to do that. So. And so London, was that must have been pretty fine. Well, Cambridge, then London, or did you stay in Cambridge for Well, it was Cambridge first and then I came home. No, and then it was France. So busking in France was the big thing for me. We, we were here. It was this time of year, just a couple of weeks ago now, 40 years ago, when um, Angus... Angus was fed up and he was doing, he was a biology student at Paisley Tech, now Paisley University, um, and he was cleaning out the Kelvin and he was a great guitar player, he played real good blues guitar, real finger plucking John Martin style claw hammer. And we had a couple of friends that all did the same kind of style and we were learning things like Blues Are in the Game and Ry Cooder songs and... Um, we were we were kind of in love with ourselves as a little bluesy folk kind of duo trio and he got fed up and he said, Look, I'm putting a Ford engine inside this VW van and then we're all just gonna go to the south of France. And I'd had ma had many little like attempts at busking in Sucky Hill Street and, and the Barras and and I was good at it, but I didn't want to do the cues, I didn't want to do any of that and my friends Croft and Bobby, I think Croft is still busking. Um, they they took me to Sucky Hall Street one time and then somebody else took me to the, uh, the Barrowlands on a, a Sunday and I just, I just like, immediately that opened my mouth. It didn't matter if I was singing Your Cheating Heart or Lord Franklin, I would have 200 people in front of me <laughs> and a bag full of coins, like a guitar case piled like mountains full of 10 peas. And I remember taking it all back up the Great Western Road to my flat in Buckingham Terrace, with, which I stayed in with Susan Bowie and Jean. They were trainee doctors. And Angus lived next door. And Angus said, I'm putting this Ford engine in. I'm getting, I want to go where the sun keeps shining. <laughs> and off I went with him and Walter and, we, and Mark. Mark was breaking up from his wife, Becky, so... He was a dental technician, so we just, and he played great Jimi Hendrix kind of guitar, and he had two amazing Martins. So we just all went down, and this we started from here, and we got to London, and we stayed five minutes, because it was shit. <laughs> <laughs> so we tried busking there, and everybody was just like, shut up. But I mean, I did manage to get some attention, but certainly it was just, it was a dirty place, and it felt depressed. And so we um, we went from there to Dover, and then we went to the south of France. From there, Paris, first six months in Paris, playing the Saint-Michel every single night. During the time that Bob Marley died, I remember that, we were, we were playing Stir It Up, and we were just busking all the way, and then we, we decided to head southeast. So we went past Lyon, and everywhere we stopped, we'd play hoping not to get arrested and moved on. But it was wonderful with the gendarmes because I picked up a lot of French quite quickly and I could charm them. And, 
you know, je suis écossaise, et je perdu, je vous, je vous, I'm lost, je vous, je vous cherche mon, mon maman, my mother, I'm looking for my mother, she lives in Glasgow, tu écoutes, le, le, tu connais écossaise, il a le kilt, ok, il est nous, Johnny Walker, you know, and I just charm the socks over these people. And I'd sing like an angel and it'd be all over the shop and I could, you could hear me all the way down the street. So I felt a great affinity with uh, the French culture. I liked the way when I turned up in France, that, you know, I saw Catholic uh, cakes in the baker's window and I went, are you allowed to do that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it was bloody some sort of mental tribal nonsense back home. So I was loving the expansion of my... Uh, of my experience and folk music helped me do that, you know, Van Morrison music especially though, but you know, Into the Mystic and, and uh, Brown Eyed Girl and Tupelo Honey made me a fortune in Leon, Leon. just <laughs> over the period of an hour I sung it about 20 times and then I went down, we ended up in this little place on a river and we got work, we got fed up, I got fed up singing in the street and my throat got sore and I'd been using, using my voice without a microphone for so long that um, I had strengthened it, but at the same time, I'd got weary and um, I decided we have to get proper jobs. So we got jobs with uh, the farmer, Pierre. Pierre and you get his wife. And Angus said, thank you very much. <laughs> and it took him three days to get that joke. Pierre was like, ah, you get to my wife. Ah, yeah, it's very funny. So we ended up playing music for him. And then on Saturdays, we'd go down to the marketplaces. So that was a good year and a half of my life. So I didn't touch London really till after that. And then I came home, got a job in a factory in Irvine, got depressed, uh, answered an advert in, in Melody Maker or NME for back and singing and got a job with the Gang of Four, then got a job with Alison, uh, the Eurythmics, then got a job with Alison Moye, then got a, then got Fairgrounds Were they, Would you have had to audition? Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. I mean, getting the audition was, was a load of bullshit because I just phoned up from the phone box outside Irvine's, the factory I was working in was called Mary Queen of Scots and there was a phone box. And um, and I'd go in there in my ten pences, and I'd just phone these numbers on and all these adverts. And my friend had said, just just go for the box adverts, because the box adverts means they've got a bit of money. <laughs> They're not going to. It's not some daft wee band in a bedroom, you know. So I answered two. One was for Shack Attack, and one was for the Gang of Four. And I got the audition for the Gang of Four. God knows what would have happened to me <laughs> with the shoulder pads. <laughs> if I'd have gone in the other route, I don't have no idea. I certainly know that in London, when I got there, I went down for the audition, so that was when I first landed in London. And I got the audition, and I was on the old grey whistle test that week with them while they were still choosing between me and another. And then they said it was me, and they took me on a plane for the first time. And the first gig... I had to do with them was 60,000 people at the Oz Festival, California. <laughs> and I had just been in the factory the week before. It was like, right, and busking before that. So so it was all new to me. So this was a new, new, a new chapter of learning studio technique, stage technique, harmony, using a microphone. I mean, my God. And then, of course, studio work. So, you know, I just, I was, I'm pretty, I was, that song really suited me perfect because I was a perfectionist only when it came to singing. 
Um, everything else, I was a mess. You know, I just, I'd, I'd get drunk so, and so did you meet these guys really. in London then for the gang four? Yeah. Well, yeah, yes. Uh, only through you know through knowing some like Anthony Thistlethwaite played saxophone for the Water Boys, and he knew a guy who played for the Kick Horns, which was the trombone section, trumpet horn section. He was a Scot. And I said hello to him because I'm Scottish, I'm in London, where's the way we do it? You know, are you Scottish, where are you Faye? Mm -hmm. So he and I became pals, but he knew Anthony Thistlethwaite, who sometimes played with the Water Boys, and then Mike Scott eh, asked him if he knew any singers to do some BVs, so I sung on Mike Scott's record, The Big Music. So that's me singing on that. And then various people got to know of me through that kind of social network. So there would be... Um, uh, Martin Evan was with Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre was in Jane Eyre and the Belvedere's and she was going out with Martin Evan and they had a soul band and their backing singers, singers let them down in this pub in Waltham store or something. And Anthony picked me up in his douche and he said, uh, come on to this pub and sing for this poor guy <laughs> and his missus because they've lost their, their backing singing, singers. So I turned up, sung for him and they took me to dinner and he was absolutely over the moon with me and and I said, well actually I'm trying to write and I'm looking for songs and he sent me some songs and I thought they were fantastic. So And they were kind of, I don't know if you remember, but you won't remember because you were in folk music which was still holding on to its culture at the end of the 80s, mm -hmm. but in the 80s in London, between 85 and 90, we'd kind of, there, was, there wasn't a lot of culture going on. I mean, you couldn't, you can go to a session in London. I didn't know where the sessions were, and I wasn't mm -hmm. inclusive in that. So and because I'd left Scotland and I'd left the folk clubs, there was only bungees, and and they were all, by that time, they were all dead. Like, there was nothing happening. There was a few... I think now Irvine Folk Club only holds itself once a month or something, but I know that... Twice a month, thank you. Well, that's good, because there, there was an, an energy that was going, and I think... It, it was when punk and new romanticism came in. And, and I never got involved in any of that fashion victim stuff. I, I'm very proud of myself for that. My, my goal was always to challenge myself musically and learn better things and more things. And things that I was attracted to, be it a Maria Callas aria, I'd learn... And I'd learn it word for word in Italian. And that would be my challenge for the week. And then it would be new folk songs or whatever, or a new tuning on the guitar. And that I've never changed in that way. So it's funny when I come back, I came back home and did the Robert Burns album. And after all my story in London, it, it, it's almost like it's all erased. It, it, everything before has gone. I can remember these memories, but... I know that right now I'm doing exactly the same thing as I ever did, which is try and find beauty in music. And so, well, you know, one of the things I found interesting, so you, you had the Fairground Attraction and all that success that went with it, which is uh, obviously fabulous. But then the second album was called A Fond Kiss, you know, sort of B-sides, which I thought was really interesting, you know, because that's kind of harking back to the Scottish thing. and the Yeah, I think they were trying to harness whatever whatever wild horse I was, <laughs> and they noticed that they noticed that I had a love for folk music too. So I was I was always singing these folk songs mm -hmm. that I'd learned for the busking, 
and for playing in folk clubs. You know, Lola, they'd never heard things like that. Like, I'd be with the Gang Four on tour, and I'd, at the, in the pub at night, or in the hotel bar, I'd come downstairs and I'd start singing Arthur McBride, or, or uh, that one I used to, I used to love. Uh, hang on, hang on, it's in my head. <laughs> it's in my head, he kills it. Right, Matty Groves, right, Matty Groves was my favourite. I loved to sing Matty Groves, and so I'd sing it. You know, word perfect. I needed all the verses, and I'd tell the story, and then I'd sing things like uh, that I'd learned in France, like "Allez venez, milord, vous asseoir à ma table," and I'd I'd translate while I'm singing it. Here you sit at my table. It's It's cold outside. Ici c'est confortable. In here it's comfortable. Sit down, and she's a prostitute, and she sees a, a depressed man, and she wants to make him laugh. And it's just, for me, the translation of song. You can get the surface of song, so people hear the surface and the beautiful notes that you make and the beautiful noises that you make. But if you don't have the emotional content, you have nothing. Because I don't have just as many beautiful notes as I used to have, and I'm not as quick to find the, the ways into it that I used to. I used to be quicker than I am now. But I do still believe that that what's just as strong as it ever was is the storytelling aspect of a song. Like, and folk clubs taught me that. They taught me that you explain the song before you, you start. And a lot of people were confused that I did that. With Fairground Attraction, I would stand on stage and I'd, I'd explain what a song was. I was a bit nervous, maybe I'd talk too much. But, I, but it definitely had a different effect on the audience than if I stood there with my eyes shut and just sung the songs. Ten, you know, mm. one after the other, without communicating. But I mean, obviously, <clears throat> when I saw you perform solo, I always find that quite an amazing experience because your delivery is fantastic. You know how to work a room. Well, I'm I'm brave with it now. Yeah. I'm brave with it now, braver than I've ever been, and and that's be, I I think that's just because I've managed to understand that my nerves and my fear of being the centre of attention, which I actually have, I'm not a big show off. I do like to just, I, I mean, you, I could practice and practice something, and I'd be great at it, like on the concertina, mm -hmm. and I'll get it in my, put me in front of three people, and I'll <laughs> collapse. <laughs> that happens to us all, though. You know, it's far easier. I'm a mess. <laughs> I'm a total mess. But singing, because I'm on top of it. Yeah, but I mean, I think you've got. Amazing... I don't know if it's even that. I think it's to do with the fact that I now believe that people aren't sitting in front of me, and wishing me ill. But you've also, I mean, you talk about the busking and everything. You've got an amazing technique. Maybe. As well, I mean, you when you when I watch you sing, you totally control. And and Maybe. I, and, and I, I remember that time I I watched you in the Celtic Connections Festival Club many years ago back in the old Holiday Inn days. Oh, wonderful! The noisiest gig in the world. You mean the Central Hotel? Was it? No, the Holiday, Holiday Inn. Inn. All right, yeah. okay. And actually, you had the whole place silent as they listened yeah. to it. It was an amazing. I still talk about it to this day because I've never seen it done since. Well, I mean, I think that might have been my age as well then, but I mean, I don't know if I could do that again. You know, that, that, I do remember those moments and I loved it when I was doing sound checks with Alison Moye. I loved noticing the, the bar staff in the afternoon cleaning and suddenly stopping and just looking at me and listening. It's like capturing them and it's like you caught them. It's like tickling a fish, you know, guddling they call it, don't they? 
I like that tickling a fish. I'm tickling you. And if I can do it, I used to be able to do it in ways that, that astounded even me, but no, I don't think I can. I don't think I have that ability as, as easily anymore, but that's all right. You know, I'm nearly 60. I'm kind of, I'm in a place where I always knew I was going to get to. And I thought, what am I going to do when it goes completely? But it actually <laughs> has turned into something else. It's turned into a, a bluesier, older voice, which has still got a lot of emotion in it. As I said, I'm, you know, I might not be able to dance around the octaves the way I was able to as quickly. So now I've got to, I've got to warm up a wee bit more, and I've got <laughs> to not, you know, I've got to just look after it a wee bit better. And it's uh, life. Yeah, and it's good to do that. It, oh, it's I good to it, give it that focus suddenly. Oh, because for years I threw it away like it was just a bit of... Well, now you've got the life. richness in many ways of what the folk songs that you have, you know, I understand oh. them a lot better. Oh my God. <laughs> There's so much richness in folk music and especially the place where I've been kind of barred from, which is the Gaelic expression of Scottish Gaelic... I, when I heard Ishbel McCaskill, she would sing on those holiday and nights, or definitely Central Hotel, before she passed. God rest her. No, don't God rest her. Get back here. Get back here, that spirit. You know, that's what I believe, that she's gone, but she's back here. She's going to come back through the, the kids and the energy that she's left behind. That'll still all be around. Oh, she's amazing. And she would sing something to me, um, and also Sheila Wellington. They would sing a Judy Garland song. She would sing a Judy Garland song. And I'd be like, whoa! I heard Annie Lennox singing um, uh, mm, Stormy Weather in a pub one night. She just got up, she sang it. And I was like, wow! And I heard Kirsty McCall sing a 15-verse English folk song. And, I was, and she hated folk music because of her dad and mm-hmm. a lot of like restriction. She was the same as me. There's a bit of restriction, but she took it a bit more personally than me. And um, she sort of rejected it. But I heard her sing a folk song one night <laughs> in a party and it was the best thing I've ever heard in my life. She did all the actions. She played all the parts. You know. <laughs> well, it would have been part of her. So there would be no running away from it. <laughs> it was fantastic. But then that's the tradition of singing at parties too, whether it's a... You know, I've got songs up there on the, on the harmonium. This is my old mm-hmm. uncle's harmonium. But... You know, those songs that I've picked, these are the ones that my uncles would sing unaccompanied or my aunties would sing unaccompanied. Uh, what have we got there? Birth of the Blues and I'll String Along With You and I've got one, Alice Blue Gown. And they would do it without orchestra, but I could hear the orchestra in the yeah. room. I heard them. When Uncle Frank was going, they heard the breeze and all the voices would start murmuring next to him. In the trees. And I just felt the energy in the room rise and I could hear, I, I just could hear I mean, the I orchestra. Agree. I agree, it's a Glasgow thing. I'm from Edinburgh, but I've married into a Glasgow family and they've all, they all sing like this. And even as their dad sang like that, but now all the sisters sing on a Sunday afternoon together. Oh, do they? Do they still, and did they not do it in Edinburgh then? Well, it's not how I was brought up. We are, I was brought up with sort of Jimmy Shand. And no, we had him. Silly Wizard. And, but actually, yeah. this is a, there's a more of a generic folk song thing, which I love, actually. Yeah. Well, the folk singing thing. Yeah, um, folk singing, actually. Yeah, literally yeah. folk singing. Real folk. Without any instrument. And... um unaccompanied, I suppose that's Shonos, it's like that in, in Ireland. But I, I'm very interested, I was with Phil there last week, 
and a couple of weeks ago and I was travelling with him and I was talking to him about the silly wizard thing because Phil's the same age as me and I know that he was in Silly Wizard and that was active before I left here. So when I was 17, 18, I missed Silly Wizard. I don't know where they were. I don't remember them being like the big act that would be asked to come in. And he explained to me that they made it in America first. And uh, I don't know how that happened because I didn't know that there was a Scottish voice in America, you know, our market for for a Scottish folk cultural voice in America. I know that they have Highland Games and all that, but I know that the Irish are much better at it. So I, that, I, that, that puzzles me because as obsessive as I was about folk music, I don't know why I didn't know about the Silly Wizard. Well, do you know what the amazing thing about Silly Wizards is? I, I was in 1983 and I was 13. I went to see them at the Edinburgh Playhouse yeah. and it was packed and the audience shouted requests to the band for Silly Wizard. Wow. I was like, <laughs> it's the silly. Silly, it's my jaw drop wow. to think about that. Yeah. So I, I just, I think I must have just missed it by being away. Like yeah. France and then thinking the music scene had died here for me. And then what am I going to do? I think you have to remember as well. I know I don't know the Glasgow scene very much. So it's a star times. club. Star Club, but Edinburgh, through the 70s, 80s and 90s, and it's still going today, was a massive There was scene. a healthy scene. But it was uh, that Silly Wizards, the Ali Baines, yeah. they were all there. Yeah. And that's what that kind of scene was. I saw Andy Irvin and Paul Brady at the Edinburgh Folk Club, and it was in a kind of... And I remember thinking that the white walls were part of the cave, and it was very near Arthur's seat, so I don't know where it was exactly, but I was taken there, yeah. saw them, blew my mind. And that it, album's been my favourite album. I remember chatting to Paddy Maloney, and he spent a lot of time in Edinburgh. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, so I think there was something, quite a lot going on there. Yeah. And something different would have been going on in Glasgow. Well, for me, you know, people on the dole that didn't have the fare to get to Edinburgh, you could only rely on lifts or hitching mm -hmm. if you did that which you didn't really do then the late 70s there was a bit of that down south but not in a, maybe an Aaron you would hitchhike so so I could only go with what was local really and and whoever band I was in if they had a, had a vehicle one of the things that you know when I was looking back at your career is uh, what's amazing me is you've been really prolific Oh, well, I mean, there's nearly records every couple of years. Well, I'm absolutely desperate because I don't think I'm as hardworking as I'd like to be. I mean, I need space for it. I need to be on my own, in amongst nature, in amongst like life and just with my own thoughts. And then I notice things rise up and I start being creative. Once I've tidied everything. And once <laughs> Do you like the studio? Not really. I, I'm uncomfortable in a studio. I, I don't feel it's... I feel it's quite clinical. I like in the house. We did Vagabond in here downstairs. We put all the stuff in and I was singing on this couch while they had separation downstairs. So, so you know, I quite like the home environment. And, and I, I've sung in every studio and with lots of producers. Martin Rushant, John Woods, eh, the guy that recorded Nick Drake. I've, I've sung with all these people... And their studios are lovely, but I've always got to put a carpet in or a, or a bunch of lights, a string of something. 
I've always got to just try and make it as homey as possible. Incense. I used to burn incense all the time, set off all the fire alarms. It's just, I wasn't very comfortable in studios. I don't think I am still. So we'll let you talk about the latest album, Cavalier. I, I thought it was an yeah. incident because it's like, it's quite folky, but it's also got rock and roll in it. It's a, quite a mixture. Yeah, that's what you get when you don't, go into a studio for four years and then <laughs> you go into a studio thinking you've got nothing and realising you've got a million and one things but I mean we recorded we did two sessions the first session I'm very I, I can't hear it in the moment I can be it in the moment and I can live it in the moment so musically I can live the energy in the moment but I'm not actually outside myself listening in so I can't quite tell it all is brilliant Whereas I noticed with other people, they'll go, oh, that was a good take. And I'll go, oh, how can you tell it was a good take? It was, it, was, it was almost identical in energy for me to the th take I've done 15 times before. But obviously there's something that other people hear and I have to rely on that because I am a, a bird of the moment. I'm like, I'm whistling tunes and, and I'm getting off in the moment. So it's only like now I'll not listen to Cavalier until next year. And then when I hear it, I'll go, well, that was pretty good. <laughs> because I can't, I've got to distance myself from everything I've done. Like the Burns album, I, sometimes I surprise myself and I'll hear, I'll hear it and I'll go, oh, geez, that's really good. Why? I know that I'm going to sing that note, but I can tell that I'm going to, she who is singing on that record <laughs> is going to sing that note. But I don't remember the experience of doing it. I just remember being in the room and and I, and I I just super focus I I withdraw my ego completely try my best and anything that brings my ego up annoys the <laughs> hell out of me you know a drummer having a problem with some other with a bass player will annoy me so much because it brings the ego into the room and I cannot bear it I've got to be isolated lost not thinking about whether he likes it or she likes it. Not worried about all that. Just try and get completely lost. And studios don't lend themselves to that. Mm -hmm. Being in the kitchen does when you're washing the dishes or if I could have a microphone in this living room and, and just sing away, I'd probably catch tons and tons of stuff that happen every day in my life, every hour of my life. There's a melody in my head. I wake up with melodies, but to catch it, uh, yeah, you you have to be a wee bit of a, a butterfly catcher. So I, one of the things I never knew about you when I was reading is actually, and it's interesting when you talk about how you feel in the studio and everything, it's, I never knew you did acting. Well, I tried it. But you were, I read a script. Come on, it's not really... No, <laughs> I wasn't really trained in Meryl Street wonderfulness. <laughs> I and, and as a perfectionist, I would only consider acting if you did that. If you went and you had... I do have an ability to tell a story. I have a, I have a good ability. And I've realised that's part of my DNA because my great-uncle uh, talks about it in his diary that I found when I cleared the house of his son. And I found things about my three-times great-grandfather who played concertina and my great-grandfather who sung Robert Burns all over Scotland. I didn't know anything of this. I also learned from him that he could tell stories of my of his ancestry and he, he uses a word that I'd never heard before called psychometrize he says that I I could psychometrize my uh, my 
my history, my ancestry, to the much to the delight of my relatives. And I looked that up. It's a really old word, I think. Nobody uses it anymore, but it's it means to to um, to attract them into the room, to bring up the vision into the room so that everybody sees what you're seeing. And I think I can do that. I, I'm practicing it and I love it. I love doing it. I love explaining. I love explaining the feeling of something to somebody and, and imagining how... I've seen it happen. I, I can change people's... I can see them getting lost in my story, you know, whatever the story is I'm telling, if I'm not too long-winded about it. So I'm, I'm editing myself as well, but I do enjoy that process of acting, which is, here's the story, be that character, be that character. And basically, John Byrne, I was talking to him the other day, it was John Byrne that had heard me on a woman's hour thing. Actually, my life was in turmoil, but I did this woman's hour interview, and um, I only did it by chance. I did it because I wasn't informed of something that had happened dramatic in my life. And if I had known about it, I would have cancelled all work. So I didn't know about it. So I went down to London to do this Women's Hour interview. And from listening to that, John Byrne had this character in his head called Jolene Jowett, who was a self-centred, egotistical narcissist. And he decided that I would be perfect for this part. <laughs> I don't still know today whether it's a compliment or a, an insult. But I was talking to him the other day on the phone and he says, um, he's given me advice about my mother's hearing aids and all that. But it, I, he, I, I was asking him, you know, I was telling him about what was going on with me and how that was only a chance interview. And he said, not in a thousand years would I have imagined. And he said, that's how good you are as an actor. You can hide that. You can hide all that stuff and just present the, the story. And I thought, well, maybe that's what it is that I'm good at, you know, that I can that Well, I, can I think that's it. your connection with the songs as well, is that you're a storyteller. Michael Mara always said that to be a great singer, you have to be a great actress. In a, in a cer on a certain level, you have to be able to... Uh, I'm going to break your heart with this, you know, and I know I'm going to break your heart with it. And I'm going to watch you feel better because you've had your heart broken in that way, I think. Is what it is. I, but I'm not doing it for whoever's listening. I'm doing it... In a way, I am. Yeah, of course I am. I'm, I, I like that idea. I like that idea that a, a lot... Well, a lot. Well, yeah, people gather in front of me and I'm going to tell them a story and I'm going to... I'm going to bring them in to where I love them because I love being here and I love being part of the world and I love my chance to walk about and talk and, and watch and listen and see and hear and I hear beautiful singers. I mean, I've fallen in love with this Billy Eilish or Eilish. She's this wee lassie and she's 15, 16 and she, her big brother in his bedroom makes the music and samples her and she writes the lyrics and it's all about, there's a lot of angst in it, teenage kind of bad girl. But she's fantastically creative. And I, I, I adore it. Like, I adored Amy Winehouse when she came out. I was like, I, I find when people come out like that, oh, that guy that plays concertina in Tal... 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 Uh, Moss and Amini. Moss and Amini. When I hear him, or Martin Green, or Chris Dreamer, and they're all young, and I'm like, yes! It's still happening. 
nothing can kill it. The music industry can't kill it. The, the people's cynicism can't kill it. It will continue to burst through like dandelions and daisies and it'll come through whether you put concrete on it and flatten it, that grass will push through. And that's what I love about music because it's untethered and it's wild and it's like the wind. You just can't catch it. Well, I think that's the place to end. All right, sorry. <laughs> fantastic. I've got lots to tell you about my no, that... violin playing. <laughs> <laughs> that was fantastic.